Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello playing Let Freedom Ring. Tom's artistry provides a steady soundtrack for our wildest freedom dreams, and we appreciate him. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Alim and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We stay tuned in to the basic questions and we're calling all freedom lovers, inviting you to tune in with us and to wrestle with the big and fundamental questions. Where in the world are we and where are we in the world? Where do we come from and where do we want to go? How can we name this political moment? What is to be done now in our ongoing search for freedom? We're bound together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. Today, I'm talking to you from Chicago, home to many indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy, the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. As teachers, freedom fighters, and activists, we strive to remember and to honor a history of stolen land and resources and pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for justice. We open each episode with a poem, our by now familiar practice. Today's poem is by Joy Harjo, and it's called Perhaps the World Ends Here. The world begins at a kitchen table, no matter what we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table, so it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teethe at the corners. They scrape their knees underneath it. It's here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table we gossip, recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It's a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth at this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. That's Joy Harjo's poem, Perhaps the World Ends Here. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to shake free from whatever frenzied or frantic editor slash critic is perched on your shoulder, commenting disapprovingly on your every sentence. And we ask you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of our freedom seminar, the nowhere of the underground, and the nowhere of utopia. So this is a moment to put words on the page. No editing, no second guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. Write your life story in no more than three minutes. This is an exercise in concision, brevity, and get straight to the point. Okay, 
begin. We'll be right here when you get back and we'll be ready to listen. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. I have a tattoo on my left wrist that declares every day another story. And just below that one, these words call out, every life a universe. That credo grows from and nourishes my teaching at every level, and it's guided my life in a zillion ways, including leading me to write an ethnographic account of kids in the oldest and largest juvenile prison in the world, a project later published as a book called A Kind and Just Parent. In that same spirit, I embraced and was embraced by the practice of oral history, collecting the stories, the subjective experiences and personal perspectives of the extraordinary, ordinary people. It's the poetry of the everyday, the literature of the streets, not a substitute for other disciplines, but an essential piece of any accurate record of human events. Oral historians reject the dispassionate stance of traditional social science, adopting instead a capacity for empathy and identification, for joy as well as indignation, and above all, a willingness to be changed in the process. The stories people tell and share can become powerful tools against propaganda, political dogma, and all manner of impositions and stereotypes. Seeking honesty and authenticity in stories means becoming attuned as well to contradiction, to disagreements, silences, negation, denials, inconsistencies, confusion, challenges, turmoil, puzzlement, commotion, ambiguities, paradoxes, disputes, and uncertainty. Oral historians, like good teachers, dive headfirst into every kind of muddle, the wide, wild world of human experience. Oral history concerns itself with what happened, and with an essential overlap, that which is said to have happened. Oral historians do the work, then, of historians, sifting through the records for facts and artifacts, as well as the work of anthropologists, searching for meanings that people attribute to particular events and specific experiences. Oral historians do both, and then some, gathering together the factual with the meaningful. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we visit with comrades and co-conspirators who can help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we share, name this political moment with clarity and courage, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement toward freedom and justice. We release our most radical imaginations and ask, what's going on? And then, what is to be done? I'm profoundly pleased to be joined in dialogue with Adam Bush, activist and organizer, extraordinarily innovative teacher, and someone who has regularly disrupted my thinking in all the right ways in recent years. He's the co-founder and provost of College Unbound, an innovative degree completion college working both inside and outside prisons to ensure that all adult learners are valued as scholar practitioners and have a pathway to access a college degree. Welcome, Adam Bush. Thanks, Bill. It's really good to be here with you. You know, I love this that you're um, a provost. You know, I was the deputy mayor of education in Chicago, appointed by Mayor Daly. And when Malik, my who was then 
seven years old, found out that I was a deputy mayor. He said, you don't look anything like a deputy mayor. And I said, thank you. So I have to add, you don't look anything like a provost. When a few people get together to start a college, it's sort of like someone's got to be president and someone's got to be provost and then everything else fits in around that. And so I became a provost and I, I don't really wear a suit and tie, don't really cut my hair so well. Uh, I try to be the least provostial provost there is. And I think you're, I think you're succeeding mightily. Um, tell us a bit about College Unbound, because I've learned about it slowly through the years that I've known you. And it strikes me as one of the most radical departures from what we think of as college. And yet it's trying to fit into a frame that says getting a college degree is worthwhile. But you who have always been denied that ought to have that access. Tell us a bit about it. Sure. Um, I mean, the unbound is very purposeful. It's a critique of college as it is and was and trying to imagine as it could and should be. Uh, we just in November of 2020 became accredited. I think we're the, I would bet uh, we're the newest accredited college in the country. We're certainly, I might even say the newest college in the country uh, as we've been navigating this process. Um we were recognized in Rhode Island in 2015 as an independent institution, and at that point as a degree completion college. So one really saying we wanted to create a space for adults who have started and not finished their degrees. Now that we're a college, we want to be the, the least college-y college there is. Uh, the degree for us is not the ends. It's the means to imagine something new and better collectively and for each person through their process towards a college degree. What is that something new and different? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when folks are going for, for a degree normally, they, in a lot of ways, they have to like excuse themselves from the other parts of their life to take classes, even if they're the best class with the best professors. It's, it's in these other spaces, these campuses, they got to cross the gates and the ivory walls to do it. We're really trying to think about how a college can exist in place of learning that are already there, that people are already taking part of. We want to think about if we're really valuing adults as learners and experts in their lives, how do you not, how can you be a teacher to your peers and have that be a credit bearing experience, not just a faculty member who the college hires? How can you, before you even walk in the door of the college, be recognized and honored for your years and years of learning that you've done in your workplace, in your community, doing community organizing? How can that be seen as a big chunk of what it means to move towards a bachelor's degree? And then how can the bachelor's degree itself be the excuse for you to tackle new and different work? How can it be the thing to provide capacity to imagine an organization doing work that it wasn't before, uh, an organizing moment that it could be that you want to respond to, instead of the degree being the thing that removes you from all that? How can it be an asset-based approach to education that values where you are and who you want to be and builds all around that? You know, what I'm hearing, and, and clarify this, but what I'm hearing is that, um, you know, college, as we think about it, is checking a box or passing a gate. You're not doing that. You're saying, actually, we want the college experience to be the actual life you're living, and we want to honor that and embrace that. Sounds very Dewey and very Paulo Freire. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, you're naming all of you, and, you know, and I've learned a lot from you in doing this whole process. Um it was important for us also, with all that you just said, for us to be an accredited school. We could have, Why? Because at least in this moment in the world or in this country, the degree is still the shorthand for someone to demonstrate that expertise. Mm. I want someone to be able to, to demonstrate that authentically on who they are. 
and not have to put those pieces of who they are aside so that they can enter a degree program. So I want the degree to be different, but it was important for us to have an accredited degree so that someone could enter into graduate school and continue their studies so that folks can really think about building something new or get the promotion that they were held back on because they didn't have a degree. So we're really trying to intervene in all those ways. And then in doing that, circling back to think about where college should be, how it should be, and what that degree process can look like. You know, I also think about our, our growth model. You know, we, um, we're having college-inbound cohorts based in public libraries, in community centers of public housing, in city hall. As folks graduate, it's not just that we need to keep adding more and more students in every place and get bigger and bigger and establish a campus in every city we want to be at. We want to think about a college amount that, like an accordion, will grow and shrink to meet the demands as this happens. Mm. So that in a community arts organization, if all the employees in that space who don't have a degree enter into a college amount program together and for three years work to advance towards their degree and to support that organization, they then graduate. There may not be a college inbound in that organization the next year or two years or three years because it's done the work. We want to do the work and respond to needs as they are instead of building brick and mortar campuses and then having to maintain those brick and mortar campuses. You named some interesting spaces, art spaces, community centers, public housing. You didn't mention prisons, but I know you teach in prisons and College Unbound has a presence in prisons. Speak a minute about that. Yeah, absolutely. You can't be a place called College Unbound and not be working within space. College bound, you, you know, when you said it's in, in opposition to what is, yeah, I'm thinking of college kind of entangled or college, uh, you know, gagged and bound. Gagged, gagged and bound. I like, yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly about college as it is being a thing that keeps people in their very specific paths. Um, Working within the ACI in, uh, in Rhode Island, in working in partnership with PNAP here in Chicago, we want to think about a college degree process that, again, honors the experiences and the learning that people are doing in daily practice in those relationships, um, in the writing that you're doing, in how to, how to document navigating the spaces that you're in, the oppressive spaces that you're in, but recognizing that learning happens there. And how can that move you towards a bachelor's degree? There's a lot of attention right now also about uh, Second Chance Pell happening. And uh, so there's a lot of university attention to go back into prisons at this moment. You know, we, we've been uh, working in prisons not for so long, but for the past like five or six years. Okay. And, and doing so as a fully free program inside. Um, I want to make sure we're always a fully free program inside. Um, and creating the pathways for folks as they're navigating parole, probation, and reentry to see those as credit-bearing experiences that they'll be able to advance towards a bachelor's degree, whether they're inside or outside, and having those um, navigations of systems be credit-bearing activities. You know, it's interesting because you, you know, I've probably taught longer than you've been alive, maybe. Um, but I started teaching in 1965. When were you born? You beat me. Okay, good. Um, but but what's interesting is that recently you and I are both teaching in, in prison these days. And I had um, a back and forth with uh, a student. And he was critical of me for not um, for being too abstract, not specific enough. And you helped me enormously by saying, look, first, give him a break and, and acknowledge, give him specific help, specific instruction. But also, just as you were saying about having it be real life, he had a, a dream of making an Afrocentric higher education project. 
And you said, good, have that be what he writes about, not something abstract over here that'll make him a better writer outside of the content that you want to do. I was very impressed with that. So thank you. Well, one, I think I've learned so much in being in conversation with you and in teaching these classes together. Um, and I think what you did so well in that correspondence with that student was also recognize the shittiness of the situation yeah. we all are in, in this COVID moment and in being locked up and in dealing through correspondence, education, through letters that are hard to go back and forth. And it's the acknowledgement of that that I think is so important too. It's not just business as usual. Um, you know, as this, I uh, described us as a, a degree completion school. So we are a school in a lot of ways for like adult learners who started school other times. And then those were like traumatic, crummy experiences that didn't allow them to be successful. And so they're coming to us with a critique of higher ed, with a critique of systems. So part of our curriculum is it's the unlearning, but it's also, it's an acknowledgement that higher ed has not done what it should do. It may have done, it may have done what it's been built to do, which is to help some people and not others, mm -hmm. but it certainly hasn't done what it should do. And we need to work together for something else. Yeah. I think, I think that's something that's really worth pushing folks on is the idea that it's not just what is college and what has its mission been, but what do we think it could be or should be? And I think College Unbound really offers us some interesting examples. And, and it leads me to want to ask you, um, what impact do you think you could have or, or might have or aspire to have on folks who are in traditional institutions? I mean, is your impact to impact a, a professor to go in a certain direction to maybe imagine departments or entire colleges um, adapting, you know, kind of your vision? Yeah. Um, institutions are really resilient at staying institutions. And so... Um, I don't have any false dreams of tearing down every school that, that exists right now. Uh, part of what I want to do is create the other model. I want to create ways for folks who are hurt by the way things are to have a pathway to it. And I want to create other sustainable, um, pathways to employment for folks who are interested in being in higher ed, uh, and ways to very strongly critique higher ed as it is. Uh, I think, you know, we're always in this moment of crisis, whether it's financial crisis of higher education or this COVID moment where schools didn't know if they're having students or if they're able to do things in person. We need to keep thinking about how we're creating different ways of interacting, being together, supporting one another and learning from one another. There's a time and a place where it works really well for the 18 year old on campus to do that. But certainly that that's about 23 percent of all college students. Um, and so we need schools that are built specifically for adult learners and, and the broad definition of the adult learner, the person who doesn't build their full experience about being uh, entirely on campus in that way. You know, but I'm, I'm thinking now suddenly, as you talk about this, I'm thinking about a counter institution that I was a part of in 1965, which was a little freedom school. And we had, we were very community based. Our slogans were things like uh, build an interracial movement of the poor. Um, kids are only newer people, an experiment in integration and freedom. Those were kind of our, our watchwords and our buttons. Um, but we had a very strong ethic that said we have to remain insurgent. And if we don't remain and if we remain insurgent, we're going to be a threat. And if we're a threat, we're going to find resistance. But if we don't remain insurgent, then what are we doing? We're creating a gentle experience for a few kids. So our, we were always in dialogue with the, un, the teachers unions, with the school board, with the parents groups, because we wanted to be 
a, a, a thorn in the side of the bastards, but we wanted to be an inspiration to students and parents and teachers. I, I really appreciate that. I, I think I'm struggling with that at this moment because we navigated accreditation to become a college, to be a peer, and always want to be critiquing and pushing against. And so we're a college now, so what? Exactly. Before we before 2015, we were recognized as the 13th post-secondary degree granting institution in Rhode Island. We were a, a nonprofit instigator pain in the ass that partnered with other already accredited colleges and universities and sort of subversively created pathways for adult learners to navigate those degrees better. And that was great. I, I loved having a bad guy. The university was it, but really was the provost. Right. Now that I'm the provost, I, I have to think about in all seriousness, what does it mean to be the bad guy? Is it that I can, I should create policies that are the right policies uh, that we can all live by? Is it policies that need to be a certain way because we're actually accessing federal financial aid so people can access dollars to support themselves? And so I need the policies to be a certain way, but can I turn a blind eye? Am I okay being the bad guy that people are subversively doing things around? Or do I want to be the instigator of those? So it it's a very funny and scary and tense position to be in where I, I want to be something else. And also I want to institutionalize the right parts of us. It's interesting because you, you're, you're, you're making me confident in your project precisely because you're saying you're living in the painful center of a contradiction. And I think too often Americans, I think it's a particularly Western thing, but, but maybe it's just a human thing. We can't live in contradiction. We want to resolve it. And I know that for progressive educators, it's been a lifelong problem that I've seen and addressed and been part of, which is you want to create a, a school that is child-centered, that's non-competitive, that's uh, loving and justice-oriented, but you live in an unjust, unloving, hyper-competitive, hyper-individualized society. So one or the other is going to have to give. They can tolerate you for a minute and then they will crush you or you will co-opt yourself. But what I really love about what you said a minute ago is just that you are defining living within that contradiction. And if you can find a way to hold on to it without either being ripped apart or collapsing on one end or the other, I think that's both admirable and exemplary. I'm okay being the straw man if the right work can happen. And so it's how to how to live in that space. You know, every adult comes to College Unbound with with a critique of what didn't work and with a hope of what they want to do. And so we just need to, we need to acknowledge that hurt and build with them so they can do the work that they want to do in the world. Not easy. And it must, the tension must be acknowledged and must be kind of lived with. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's not just students too. I mean, it, it's the faculty who come to us with those same, they're seeking us out because institutions haven't been the spaces that have allowed them to be their full participants in their life, in their work, in their research. Uh, we're all, you know, in our past teachings at other institutions, we've all felt that too. And so trying to have a space that really does that honoring for faculty, for staff, for students. Um, and then how do you measure that is really what we're thinking about too. It's, it's of course, not just about degree retention, uh, retention and degree attainment. We want to think about how do you how do you measure different capacity for hope? How do you think about generational change? How if I'm creating a school where folks can engage in the school through their kitchen tables, how do you think about the kids sitting around the kitchen table together too? 
And we always, whenever anyone gathers at College Inbound, you gather in small eight to 12 person cohorts in person, if it's in person, there's always hot meals and there's always childcare provided. Mm-hmm. We're trying to think about how someone can be fully present in that space mm-hmm. and how we can live our best selves and, and support one another to the best of our ability to be full learners there. And when you assess students, when you give evaluations, how do you do that? A, B, C, or what? Yeah, every two months, students are doing public exhibitions of their work at whatever level they're comfortable in a public exhibition. So it's their eight to 10 peers around the table. It's uh, thinking about who their work touches as they're all putting projects into action. And so how do we think about um, bringing those folks into the exhibition? It's alumni of the school. It's their boss at work. It's other faculty. Every student has around them what we call the learning team. And so you want to think that they're sharing their work with that learning team all at once and getting feedback that's actionable feedback. We've been defaulting to when they're sharing that work. Think about things like Liz Lerman's um, critical response process, where as an artist, she was she had to create a process for them to share vulnerable works in progress. How do you get feedback so that you don't feel defensive and that you're in control of how that feedback's happening? And so we want to create exhibitions that aren't just presentations. No one's doing PowerPoints. You're creating uh, a way to share something that you're in the middle of thinking through. And you need to be able to grapple with that. And you want to grapple with it with the people that you care about and that care about you and the work you're trying to do. Does it have some relationship to what architectural students go through, the CRIT? You know, those those processes where the assignment is build a Holocaust museum on this hillside or, uh, you know, build a public housing project in this neighborhood. And then they have CRITs where people look at the aesthetics, the philosophy, the mechanical problem. Yeah, I, the CRIT in the school has, is a much more, uh, it's, a, it's a space of critique. Uh-huh. Um, the public forum where you may be presenting things with folks who are affected by that work. I think participatory action research at the heart of what we're trying to do more than presenting a finished product and get getting the attaboys from it. Participatory action research. And let's pivot there and let's talk a little bit about oral history because that's also, I think the, the ethics of oral history are very much a part of your pedagogy. Say a word about that. Yeah. Before any of this. Um, I was a jazz historian who spent uh, about two years living out of my grandmother's old Cadillac, driving around the country, interviewing jazz musicians. On the the Cadillac was a great entry point. <laughs> it was because it, it, it blended in everywhere. It was big enough to sleep in the back of it. And the trunk uh, held all my oral history tapes that I needed as I traveled around. <laughs> it was um, it was an uh, 84 sedan, DeVille. It was that like purple brown color. It's perfect. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, so I spent years interviewing folks about the uh, the origins of black music programs at their public high schools. And these moments of 1917 when students were going to go on strike because their music program at that point was really set up for white philanthropists. And it was a choral music program where they were asked to sing slave songs on demand. And so they petitioned and went on strike to demand there be an instrumental music program. And the school hired the print shop instructor to, to set up a band room. I think about uh, Captain Diet at Chicago, in Chicago at DuSable. Uh, and so I was writing about folks like Diet who, you know, Chicago's known for like its tenor saxophone sound. And in, in every way you can like talk about that sound, people talk about it as like, oh, that's so Chicago. Mm-hmm. And there's ways where an architecture folks will talk about it as like, oh, it's because of the stoops, that people are gathering on the stoops and they're all playing together in that way. But everyone who has that tenor sax sound also went to DuSable and they studied under Diet. So how do you think about telling 
jazz history through this history of relationships and pedagogy, not through bandstands and performance, but through those practice rooms. Wow. So that's the work I was trying to do of the, the classroom from the 19, really 20s through 50s, and then these spaces that emerged in the 60s, 70s, and 80s from the second generation of folks who grew up in those classrooms. And as cities started to change, like AACM, uh, set up other kinds of collectives that drew on lessons learned about improvisation uh, in those classrooms. Mm-hmm. And did you write this up? You ended up with a project written? Uh, yeah, it was the thing that initially brought me to graduate school. And so I wrote about it in those spaces. And the way I love writing, talking about it now and writing about it is my uh, annual commencement address. So that's where I'm drawing on that work a lot. Um, but really more than anything, College Unbound is how I, uh, how I talk and write about it. It's, I think about how am I institutionalizing improvisation? And I think about how am I embedding in this institution the ethics of oral history? You know, oral history as the space of shared authority between storyteller and, and historian. And in any work that is happening in the college, it, the student needs to own it. Any student needs to own it. It needs to be not just this thing that's set up in the school and away from them, but really about shared ownership as we're building this thing collectively. So the ethic of oral history is partly shared ownership. What else? Well, oral history, uh, and that was a great segue to the oral history stuff. You want to say, you got it. Um, you know, written records and, and with this, you know, traditional disciplines in academia often privilege the voices and perspectives of elites, of leaders in society. And, and it's rare or it was rare that these histories chronicle stories of people of color, of working class or the young. Oral history in a lot of ways asks why that is. It, it's a critique of that. It's a methodological critique of that. It provides a counter narrative studying not just what happened in a traditional sense, but also why histories are remembered, why certain ones are told and passed down, and who decides to tell it. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about the college, it's it's what knowledge is valued, whose knowledge is valued, and also whose knowledge gets erased. Um, you know, oral history, unlike autobiography, unlike oral traditions in general, wouldn't exist without the active interventions of the historian and that relationship. So it's a document created as a result of questions and questioning. The story, the tale, the explanation exist without the historian. It's about that telling. But the record and the form it exists happens out of the agency uh, and the relationship between historian and storyteller. Very, it's deeply relational and it's a pedagogy of questioning, right? So in many ways, it dovetails really nicely with your approach to teaching. I mean, your approach to teaching and your approach to active listening and the ethic of relationship really comes together kind of beautifully. Yeah, uh, I don't know what it means to institutionalize that. And me either. <laughs> but I know I knew what it was to um, do work as an oral historian and to grapple with, um, you know, traveling around the country, interviewing folks, and then having a responsibility to share those audio tapes, to type up the transcripts and share those transcripts, to make sure if any piece of it was used, it was done in sort of um, dual consult between us all, thinking about what we want to do with that. And if they're building an archive, who's holding that archive? Um, All those questions are what make oral history different and special because it's with that grappling. It's with that that the collective navigating. When you're practicing oral history as either a teacher or an oral historian, Mm -hmm. there are all kind of muddles and contradictions and silences and lapses of memory and all these things that happen. But, but. 
there's something that drives you forward. And that is this notion of listening with the possibility of being changed. Yeah. Oral history is both about the story telling of the past and the memory of it. It's about the relationship of the present. And it's about imagining both a, a new future and a new or possible present. Um, there's this, you know, you and I both uh, read a lot of Alessandro Portelli. And Portelli talks about, I think in uh, Death of Luigi, Luigi Trastulli, about this idea not just of utopia, but of Uchronia. This alternative present that might have been. It's this thing I love the most about oral histories because folks fall into in their stories when they're talking about the past. Oh, if I had done this, then this would have happened. Then this could have happened. It's this other kind of realm that you end up living with when you're when you're hearing a story from someone about the world as it could be. And it could have been now and maybe should have been now. That, I think, is so special about oral history. So tell the story of interviewing your grandmother when you were practicing, uh, a young practicing oral historian, because I love that story. Oh, uh, sure. I was, I was just back from college and she was 92 at the time. Um, and I just sat down with a camera and I would go every day after day. We maybe did like four hours a day for a couple weeks. Um, and this is a time after my grandfather passed away. So she told stories of past lovers. She told stories about her kids. She told stories of, um, what surprised me and, and was really sweet at the end is she, she kept on asking why I was asking her those questions. She didn't understand why her story was important. And I would every day remind her, this is amazing for family, for us to have a record. This is amazing because you're brilliant in the way you navigated this and grew up at this time. This is amazing because when we're centering love and relationships, you made decisions in your life. That, but she still didn't get why her story had value. She, The sweet thing, and you saw the video, she so didn't get it by the end of like 4,207 hours of telling stories. She was like giddy with laughter of like, why are you still taping me? I don't get it. I don't get it. But she would still, because I was her grandson, then still entertain the next question. The idea of having to remind someone their story is important and you're going to create a space for it and that you're going to honor it, that's what's at the heart. And, and it turns out that, that you're reminding your grandmother, this matters, this matters, this matters to me, turns out to be something you have to have to do with almost everyone who is a storyteller who's ne whose story has never been valued. Yeah, that's right. I mean, oral history, it's the relationship between history and memory and this present moment. Um it's about folks saying not just what they did, but what they wanted to do, what they believed they would do, uh, what they now think they did. It, it's all of those moments. And I think those moments are also filled with doubt. Mm -hmm. And so the historian or the person you're telling, you're telling the story to reminding you that it, whether or not you made the decision you think is right, that you made a decision and you're telling the story and we need to hear it and understand it together. I think is really, really powerful. You know, it's funny because the very first um, book that I wrote was called The Good Preschool Teacher. It wasn't exactly an oral history, but it had a lot of oral history in it. And what it was was portraits of six preschool teachers, uh, one working in a homeless shelter, one in Head Start, one in a private nursery school, and so on. It was a range of settings and a range of people. But what was interesting is at the end of the process, I gathered them together. They didn't really know each other. And we had a couple of dinners together and I wanted to know whether I had been a pain in their ass. I wanted to know if I had bothered them by intruding on their time and, and insisting that they spend time with me. 
And overwhelmingly, the response was, there are people who come to see us to judge us. There are people who come to see us to write us up. There are people who come to see us to shut us down. You're the first person who came to see us because you actually thought we could teach you something. And that felt so affirming because that here were people, all women, preschool teachers, marginalized profession, not well paid. And just having the opportunity to seize the mic mattered. Now, can I ask you a question now? Because you use the uh, framing of portrait and portraiture, I think, really purposely, and you do that in your work. So how, how do you see portraiture as a method in relationship to oral history? You know, it's interesting. I, I think with a lot of this work, Adam, that the that we shouldn't be, just as you, in your work, you're very clear that you don't want to be stuck in history, social studies, English literature, art, that, that life doesn't come at you like that. In my view, the kind of writing I do, the kind of work I've been interested in, blurs the genre so, so dramatically. So the book I wrote, The Good Preschool Teacher, it's a little bit of ethnography. It's a little bit of oral history. It's a little bit of personal essay and memoir. I mean, it's got it all. And it's a mushmash of all those things. I wrote a book about kids in juvenile detention, and it's had the same aspects. It was a, a little of a lot of things. And I think that that and portraiture is part of it, try, trying to draw a portrait that's realistic. One of the things I did with that project was that I well, I did two interesting things I'd forgotten about. But one is when we got together for one of our dinners at the end, I gave them clay and I, they were early childhood teachers and I asked them to make a figure of them as a teacher. It was phenomenal. It was fantastic. It never made it into my work, but it was just an opening for conversation. And then I also um, I, I wanted them to read the the bits that I had written and tell me where I got it wrong. And while we didn't always agree, I was always willing to put in their critique of my work, which I think is also ethically important. I love that so much. Uh, I'm just thinking about you all telling stories while playing with clay. You know, with the oral history, it's really, it's the phenomenology of oral history. I think we both are trying to get at the lived experience of how, of in that telling. And um, when I was spending so, many, so much time with musicians, when they're telling stories, they're also playing their body. They're also thinking, making sounds. And and so the oral historian and the being in practice with that is also noticing all of that. It's it's the lived experience and larger storytelling environment that's a part of this. Did you ever read Elliot Mishler research interviewing? Okay, I, I gotta tell you this really quickly and but um Elliot Mishler was at Harvard and he he was a, a radical community psychologist, but he had done lots and lots of interviewing with people. Towards the end of his life, he re-looked at all the tapes and a lot of the interviews, and he said, this is bullshit. He said, I, I, you know, what I missed was all what you're describing, the sounds, the the pauses, like, um, you know, sometimes I just said, like, um, you know, sometimes you just edit that out. So when his graduate students would transcribe right. things, this would all get washed away. And he said, oh my God, I missed some of the most important things because he wasn't listening for silences. He wasn't listening. He was trying to get Q&A, Q&A. And that's what oral historians do not do. Stanley Crouch tells a story. Um, Stanley Crouch, who passed away, a cultural critic, um, his alarm clock was set to uh, the, probably KCR, the King's College Radio in, in New York. Uh, so New York. And his alarm would, would wake up with jazz every morning. And you know how you do where like you wake up the minute before the alarm? Like we all do that as we get accustomed to the time. And he woke up and he heard the alarm click on and there was silence. 
And he said he knew that that was a Thelonious Monk silence. Like a, it, the alarm started, the song started in this moment where there was a break in the song. And it's how we read silences and are aware of them in these kind of mysterious and awesome ways. That, that is a beautiful story. We also read, I mean, what's great about oral history is what Mishler was criticizing in himself was this idea that you have a research protocol and you're marching through it, Q&A, Q&A. He, he realized that relationship is important and that your framework isn't as important as your informant's framework. So if somebody begins an interview by saying, well, as an African-American or as a queer man or whatever, why there? Why is that the beginning? Why is that the positionality? And you have to kind of take that seriously as an oral historian. Well, even the history of oral history goes interestingly back and forth between those times. You know, it was it's really thought of in academia as like 1948 and Columbia establishes oral history office. And uh, I think it was based in the library. It's based in Lowe Library now or in Butler Library now. Um, but really the, the focus of it at the time was diplomatic history. And that was the work they were doing and interviewing folks and telling the official kinds of stuff. And that's what was named oral history. And as you go forward after the 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s, certainly um, oral history is used at that point as documenting, giving voice to African-Americans, women, Native Americans, immigrants, other groups that had been really pushed aside and had not had their stories documented the same way. But then if you take a, a half a step back in oral history, of of course, when you think about the 20s and the 30s in the Federal Writers Project and 2,300 interviews of formerly enslaved folks, and that that really is the heart of an oral history birth. Think about in the uh, early 40s in interviewing returning U.S. vets from World War II, and that those things that weren't thought about as what oral history became in the late 40s and 50s was actually the, the birth of what that field is. Yeah. So a lot of it's been reclaiming the things that weren't were even left out of oral history's history. Yeah, and you mentioned the WPA, and then you recognize that people like Studs Terkel and Zora Neale Hurston were hired by the WPA as, and the funny thing is, um, what I remember about that history is that they initially, when the WPA hired these folks, they said, okay, write a history of Washington, D.C. I mean, that was the initial because they had to do something. They didn't want them just kind of writing their propaganda. And and yet it turned into this really rich, deep thing. At first, it was like a travel guide to Washington, D.C. Very funny. Um, but th but this is um, I think this is really important to make these distinctions and understand this history. Another turn. So you're describing the turn of getting those slave narratives. And of course, one of the things that you learn from that is that never again can the history of slavery be told without oral sources. Those oral sources are critical. They're key. Another turn that happened with oral history, you mentioned Alessandro Portelli, but he made the turn towards memory, not memory as, you know, the critique of oral history is people forget, and that's true. But Portelli said, let's use that as a strength because memory and the ways we remember is also about meaning making. So I think the center you mentioned in Columbia, mm -hmm. at Columbia, is now called the Center on Oral History and Memory. I think. I think they let's changed their name. I think if we say it on record, then it's what it is. <laughs> that it's true. Yeah. Uh, no, you're right. I mean, any entree oral history must really deal with the history of memory and with how people tell stories and how the telling of those stories change over time. That's Portelli's work for sure. Is also when I was traveling around interviewing folks, um, you know, it was over a few years of span of expanse and different times when I would talk to folks, they would tell the story differently. Of course. That's uh, when I talk to you on a Monday and a Friday, I hear the, the same story in different ways. Oh, of course. 
And there's not only do you hear it differently from the same person, but of course, an event happened and yeah. many, many people saw it in many different ways. The other thing you're bringing to mind is that family history, the oral history of families, stories get passed along and they become frozen and emblematic. So in my family, there's a famous, my birth family, there's a famous story about me at the age of three arguing with my very strict Scotch immigrant grandfather. And he said I had to finish breakfast before I left the table. And I said I wouldn't. And the story that's told is that we stood there, we sat there together staring at each other for three hours. And finally, he left the table and said, to hell with you. Now, that couldn't possibly be true in some objective sense. No three-year-old can stare down his grandfather for three hours. But it, the story is meant to convey the meaning that as willful as my grandfather was, Bill is more willful yet. And I think, you know, those kind of stories are also important to kind of unearth and, and probe. No, that's right. I mean, what, what's really important that's memory is not just like a passive depository of facts, but this active creation and recreation of meaning built on top. And so it's being reinvented as you're changing, as times changes, as you're trying, as you're being situated in relationship to your grandfather in that way. Absolutely. And then you see the the history being fought out publicly. You see in the early 1900s, you see Confederate statuary going up all over the South as a, as a signal that Jim Crow is here and that, you know, that freedom is is a distant dream. And then you see the taking down of statues now, the retelling of history. You know, and you think of Bree Newsom climbing up and grabbing the Confederate flag. And this is all part of the kind of struggle around meaning and the meaning of, of events, but also memory. Yes. Statues is not as permanent as the folks who put them up think they were. Uh, Absolutely. They, get, they go up, they come down. Right. Now, uh, Portelli, I think, also said... Uh, each story is an experience before it becomes a text. Mm. I think with all of this, it's just like, what is it? that experience of the telling and then the institutionalizing, if I'm thinking about the school, the codifying, the building, the monument, uh, what does it mean to have this other artifact out of that? Love that. Listen, I want to ask you one more thing. How many commencement addresses have you given? Uh, well, because of... Um, COVID, I did a bunch this year, kind of interspersed as folks would finish up their degrees. But in general, I think I'm on uh, 12 now. Okay. I have a great idea for a book. And that is that, um, you know, the book will be Adam Bush will be the author and it'll be called The Beginning and the End the or The End and the Beginning. And it'll be the collected commencement addresses edited by you. And I'd love to be an early reader. More than a reader, you'll have to be a, a responder inside of it. Adam, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me. This is very enlightening, and I really appreciate it. And go forward, College Unbound forever. Well, Bill, as we're, you know, if we're thinking about that experience before it's a text thing and the way people are telling stories, I want to at least acknowledge we are both fully vaccinated. We are two weeks out. And so beyond, instead of being on Zooms as you would be otherwise, we are in a room once we push off for this microphone. We're going to hug each other. It's the experience of being together. I think it's so special. And thank you for having me. I couldn't agree more. And we actually broke bread together. So uh, it's, it's just a delight to see you. Thanks so much, Adam. You know, one segment of our of our seminar that we've neglected is our book of books. This is where we try to kind of assemble some readings that are worthwhile, that are useful for all of us. And 
you know, each of us should be developing a reading autobiography projected forward. And this is the segment where we kind of contribute to that. So I want to mention just a few books of oral history that are worth taking a look at. If you want a guide to storytelling and a guide to doing oral history, The Greatest Guide I Know is edited by Cliff Mayotte, M-A-Y-O-T-T-E, and Claire Kiefer, K-I-E-F-E-R. And it's called Say It Forward by the brilliant San Francisco-based project Voice of Witness, which has done oral histories on everyone from um, prisons to public housing to um, uh, immigrant communities, they have a list of oral histories that'll blow your mind. It's called Voice of Witness, and the book is Say It Forward. I can't recommend enough um, the newly published book by Zora Neale Hurston, Barracoon. The subtitle is The Story of the Last Black Cargo, The Last Man Delivered Onto North America from Africa. Um, is uh, the subject of an oral history interview that you will just not be able to put down. Zora Neale Hurston, Barracoon. I think um, a phenomenal oral history that was just reissued is by Vivian Gornick, and it's called The Romance of American Communism, where she goes back and interviews the neighbors, friends, and comrades of her parents' generation and does a really pretty beautiful portrait of the meaning of the Communist Party to participants and to the society as a whole. Coal Mountain Elementary is a book by Mark Nowak, and he's a poet. And this is a book that uses public testimony about a colossal mine disaster and pairs it with a mine disaster in China, as well as um, a curriculum that was developed by the coal industry to teach the value of coal to elementary school students. And in Mark Nowak's hands, this becomes a, a piece of art, but also a really deep dive into the complexity of school and of, um, of the experiences of both minors and, and their families. Just to show you the range of what oral history can, how it can be presented, it's also worth mentioning Anna DeVere Smith's book, Fires in the Mirror, where she interviews people at a conflict point in Brooklyn where the Hasidic Jewish community and the Caribbean immigrant community were in tension. And she interviews people from all sides of that, of that conflict and all positions and does a theater piece called Fires in the Mirror. It's a one-woman show in which she portrays a rabbi and a Hasidic woman and a drug dealer and a black Muslim. And she does it all from the stage but it's all based on true oral history interviews. So that's enough for right now. That's a beginning of understanding some of what oral history can do. That's my book of books for today. Before we say goodbye today, I have a homework assignment. Seek out an elder, a grandma or a great uncle, a senior figure or a community character, someone from your family or your community. Tell them you have an assignment from your seminar on freedom. Blame it on me and that you need a favor from them. Your job is to practice an ethic of listening, to engage and to pay full attention. And here's the initial prompt. Tell me about your life. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends Damon and Daniel from the podcast Ergo, and to Malik Alim, comrade, friend, 
producer, co-conspirator. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. This week's poetry beat is by Coag Music. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an essential text with joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.